transformed or these peoples being remade, there's always, there are always divisions and there are always parties and people with agendas who move in and there are always people that you can't control. You can't know everything and you can't control everything. But what if you could know everything and control everything when you were building a nation, when you were building a people? You know, sometimes when we when you think about the, the history of the nation of Israel, when you think about the history of God's people, it seems like how, how could God use this? How is God going to make this people into a nation, into many people? How is there going to be a, a great a multitude of peoples from every tribe, tongue, people, and language? How are, how are they going to, how is he going to do that? Well, God knows everything. God controls everything. And what we're going to see today, and, and what I hope you'll see, and hope, what I hope you'll understand is that the, as God has worked in the past, so he is working in the present to sustain and build a people for himself, a nation for his own, of his own choosing. Today we're going to be in Genesis 46, Genesis 46, and we've kind of been to the climax of this kind of uh, personal story of of Jacob's family, of Joseph and his brothers, and we've seen the Joseph, uh, that Joseph's brothers, they repented, and, and Joseph forgave them, and now there is this, this uniting of the, the people of God. Now this is a, a people that blessing can come to the whole world through, and yet you're still kind of left with this, these questions of what will happen to God's people? What will happen to them now? Because there's still a famine. There's still a famine that's going to last for the next seven years at this point. And so what will happen to God's people? Look at at chapter 46 and start reading with me in verse 1. We'll read through verse 27. This is what it says. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry them. him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Pelu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, but Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul, the sons of Issachar, Tola, Puba, Yob, and Shimron, the sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and Padan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah, altogether his sons and his daughters, numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggai, Shunai, Esbon, Eri, Erodai, and Areli, the sons of Asher, Emna, Ishva, Ishvi, 
uh, Bariah with Sarah, their sister, and the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin, and Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Eli, Rosh, uh, Ehi, Rosh, Mupam, Hupam, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The son of Dan, Hushim, the son of Naphtali, Jalizel, Gunai, Jezer, and Shalem. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. So start off in verse 1, and there Jacob is on his way. He's called Israel there. Make sure you don't get, uh, you don't get uh, confused. Jacob is the same person as Israel. These are two different names. Israel is the name that God gave to Jacob. And so often it is used as, a, as to, to signify him being the, the covenant. This is the covenant name of Israel. This is, the, this is why the nation is going to take on the name Israel. And so Israel is going down. He takes everything they has. He heads down to Beersheba. Beersheba is kind of the last, the last stop on your way out of the promised land. Now then, Jacob is on his way to the promised land, and, and he, yes, there is, Joseph is down there, and yes, there's a famine, and yes, uh, Joseph and Pharaoh have invited Jacob down to, the, down to Egypt, but it's not really clear that Jacob should go down to Egypt. You have to remember, as we've gone through the book of Genesis, when, when Abraham, there's a famine in the promised land. This is the land that God promised Abraham. He shows a, a, a lack of faith by going down to Egypt during the time of the famine. And of course, there he is unfaithful. He lies about his wife. He sins there. He comes back to the promised land and God reaffirms the promise. But, but going down to Egypt was not a good thing. Uh, it was not a good thing to leave the land of promise. Isaac was forbidden to leave. Uh, that's why Abraham sends his, one, of, one of his servants to go find a wife for, for uh, Isaac in chapter 24. In Genesis 26, uh, Isaac, there's another famine in the land, in the promised land. God tells Isaac, do not go down to Egypt. Instead, in that chapter, God provides wells of water for uh, Isaac. And so even, even God had even come to Jacob when he was outside the land and said, you go, to the, you go back to the land that I promised you. And so how could, they, how could Jacob now with his whole family leave the promised land? But look at what God says to him. God says to him, Jacob, Jacob. And, and again, most of, the, most of the dreams so far that Joseph has had, God didn't come there and interpret him. There was, it was this wisdom. But God speaks to Jacob through his dreams and in his dreams. He has this dream and, and God speaks to him in this vision of the night and says, go down to Egypt because here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go down there with you. That's pretty significant. You know, in, that, in the thinking of that time, gods were, were gods over a particular place. So there was a, there was a god for Egypt, there was a god for Babylon, there was a god for Assyria, there was a god for the, for the Philistines. There were there was these different gods, these kind of local deities. But this is not the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the creator god, the god who, who created and sustains all things and rules over all things. He, he, it's not like he goes up to the boundary of Egypt and, 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 the, and, and can't go any further. 
God controls everything. God is over everything. God is over all the nations. And so he's going to go down there with them and says that there, when he gets there, he is going to make them into a great nation. The reason why it's so significant leaving the promised land is because this is is a part of all these promises that God made to Abram. Made to Abraham. He said, I'm going to give you offspring. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to make your offspring into a great nation. Kings are going to come from you. Well, how can all that happen if they leave the promised land? But here God is saying to Jacob, no, go down there and I am going to keep my promises to Abraham. I'm going to keep my promises to you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And then this land that you're leaving, I'm going to bring you back. I'm not going to leave you there. I'm not going to make you into a great nation. I'm not going to forget about you. I'm going to bring you back to this place. And then you're, you're even going to remember Jacob over and over again. He said, uh, I'm going to go down to my grave in mourning for my son Joseph. Uh, I'm going to lose Benjamin. That's going to bring me down to the grave. And now God says to him, and Joseph is going to close your eyes. Joseph's going to take care of you. You see the faith that, that God is building here and the way that God is, is working out this plan. This is, this, is not the, this is not the seemingly the best idea. If you were trying to make a nation, you keep the nation in the land, you keep them there, you, you, you expand them, you multiply them. Here, here God has orchestrated everything so that there is a place where this nation can go and grow into a great nation. That place is Egypt, and God's bringing them there. Well, you see there in the next verses there that they are not just going for a visit. Uh, they are not just going down for a holiday. They're going to travel down there for seven days, maybe spend, spend a couple weeks and come back. No, they, they are carrying everything. It says that Jacob, uh, over and over again, multiple different times to kind of reaffirm it. He is, he is taking all of his sons and his son's sons and his son's daughters and his daughters and all his livestock. This is what we call lock, stock, and barrel. They are taking every single thing that they have. This is a great migration. They pile everything on these wagons, these big, big ancient Near East moving trucks, and they are headed down to Egypt, and they are headed down to Egypt to stay a while. And then they, they do, they are being, he is being obedient to God. There is, is, is Israel building this altar in Beersheba, this place that probably his father had built. And he is worshiping God. This is the presence of God speaking to him, being with him and saying, you go down, you leave Beersheba and I'm going to go with you. He's believing that God is going to do everything that he says he's going to do. And then we come to the part that is not always the most exciting part for uh, your typical Bible reader, the genealogy. You know, how we uh, often, often those are the places where we kind of skip through them real quick. Uh, but you think about this from the vantage point of that first generation of Israelites who were brought out of, out of Egypt. What are, they, what are they hearing? They're hearing this genealogy as the genealogy of their family. And what do they hear? They hear that 70 people went down to Egypt. 70 is this important number. It's probably the, uh, made, made to think, uh, kind of stylistically chosen to make you think of the 70 nations in Genesis 10. It also would th- call to mind for an Israelite the 70 elders that are there in Exodus 24. And it should, for the Christian, make you think of the 70 who were sent out by Jesus in Luke 10. Here's this, here's this kind of perfect number for, for nation building or people building. But here are these 70 people who went, went down to Egypt. And then this first generation Israelite knows, knows this census from Numbers 1. 
where they count all of the fighting men in the nation of Israel. And these 70 people turn into 600,000 fighting men, probably two to two and a half million people as a nation. It seems like this little family that is, uh, you, you think about Abraham. Abraham is this, this man who can't have a child, who can't have a son. So God takes this childless man and in a couple of generations turns him into a, a clan of 12 brothers. And then he takes those 12 brothers down to Egypt and those 12 brothers become a great nation so that two, two and a half million, a great multitude come out of Egypt. God is, God is, you, you know what I would think if I were an Israelite and I looked at the nation that was around me and I heard about these 70 people and I heard about God going down to Egypt and being with them and, and blessing them and making them into a great nation, you know what I think? I would think God keeps his promises. That's what we should be thinking. We should be thinking God keeps his promises. And hasn't God told us similar things about the way that he's building his people now? You know, Jesus' disciples could not understand why when he came out in his preaching ministry, why, why everything was starting out so small and why the, the reception was so mixed. So Jesus tells the parable of the sower to explain why there are these mixed results. You know, not everybody, not everybody has the kind of soil that the seed falls on and that produces uh, good fruit. Then he tells the parable of the mustard seed. He says he compares the kingdom of God this great, this great people, this great domain, this great nation, this great, this great kingdom that Jesus was going to rule starts out very, very small, like a mustard seed. And then it grows to be the great, the, the largest tree in the garden. And there's even this kind of picture, this kind of uh, symbolic or figurative language of all the birds coming into the tree. This is a picture of all the nations coming in. Similar to the way it was talked about with Nebuchadnezzar later, uh, earlier in the Bible. And so you have this picture of the kingdom encompassing all, all people from all nations. Jesus says it starts out very small and then it grows. Or he says it's like leaven, you know, so it's a little, little lump of dough. Uh, but Jesus says that it can, it can uh, leaven or build up or make 50 pounds of flour. That's enough for a wedding. That's enough for a big wedding. That, that's how it is with the kingdom of God. It starts out very small and then it grows into something very large. One day, God's kingdom will encompass the entire earth. And so that is the way that God is building his people. God, God starts with those things that are very small, and then he builds it. You know, I, I, think, I think, you know, big is not always bad, and small is not always beautiful. But small is not something that we should fear. You know, if our, if our church is small, that's not something to be afraid of. If the, if the church in America is getting smaller and shrinking. That's not something to fear. If the church and any people group is small, it's not something to be afraid of. It's not something to, uh, to feel guilty about. It's not something to, to, to hate. If, if we are small and obscure and unnoticed, that's, that's not a bad place to be. You know, God has often, uh, the wisdom of the world is that bigger is always better. And what God has done is take the wisdom of the world and flip it on its head. And he's taken he, Jesus himself, the same way that God took 12 men down to Egypt and made a great nation. Jesus himself chose 12 men. 12 men who were in many ways fearful, ignorant, unbelieving. And he called them apostles. 
And then he sent them out as witnesses to the nations, the world. And their testimony is continuing. And even now, God's, uh, Jesus says that he is the one who is building his church. He is, he is making it larger. You know, when you start out very small and you start out very obscure and unnoticed and you're, you're not really anything and God begins to build something, you know who gets the glory for that? God does. God does. God is the one who is keeping his promises here. And so you see that God is, God is the one who is taking care of his people there. All right, so we have, this is, this is what's going to happen with God's people. We see where they're going to go, but Egypt is not necessarily a good place for them to go. Because you move down there and you're migrating down there, what often happens to, a, to people when they move into a new country? Well, they often start to take on the characteristics of that country. They start to uh, blend in. They, start to, they maybe keep some of, their, some of the things from where they came from, but they start to become like the people that they're living among. What will happen to the people of Israel now that they move down to, to Egypt? Will they just sort of blend into the, to the Egyptians? Will they, will they become a part of the Egyptian melting pot? Will God's people fade away? We'll pick up in verse 28, and we'll read into chapter 47. It says, He, that is, uh, that is Jacob, he had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell, Joseph, tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now both we and our fathers in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan and now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the land, in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen and if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood in before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. We see there, starting in verse 28, uh, again, we, we see Judah there. We'll pick up back up with Judah later on. But Judah, he is, the, he is sort of the natural leader of the brothers now. He's sent ahead to, to scout out the way. Joseph hears about them coming up. He comes up to meet them. He meets them in Goshen, the, the, the land of Goshen that's 
repeatedly used there in this chapter to signify, hey, this is, this is what this is about. This is about where they are going to live. They've got to live in Goshen. Now, moving down to Egypt, what's going to keep them from becoming like the Egyptians? Multiple times in the book of Genesis so far, Lot had moved his family close to Sodom and Gomorrah. What did they become like? They became like the people who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. When uh, Jacob moved his family close to Shechem, what did his family become like? They became like the Shechemites. Uh, when uh, Judah moved down to live in Canaan, moved away from his family and lived among the Canaanites, what did Judah become like? He became like a Canaanite. And so what's going to keep the people of Israel from moving down to Egypt and not becoming like the Egyptians? Well, they're going to live in a particular place that's separated from all of the cities, kind of the places where Egyptian culture was happening. And they're going to be shepherds and keepers of livestock. And what does it say about shepherds and, live, shepherds and keepers of livestock? It says that they are an abomination to the Egyptians. Not only are the Israelites not going to mix in with the Egyptians, the Egyptians are not going to want to have anything to do with the Israelites. This is, this is God is using Joseph here. Joseph is the one who is going to go and present. He comes up with this, this really well-constructed plan. You know, over and over again, Joseph kind of says, hey, this is, this is the way that you say it. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go first. I'm going to go tell Pharaoh, hey, my brothers are shepherds and they want to stay in the land of Goshen. I think Goshen is best for them. Then you come in, when you ask you what you do for a living, say shepherds. We need pasture for our livestock. And then, and then where are you going to stay? Goshen. Well, he comes up with this, this plan, this plan that is from God to keep this people as a separate, distinct people. When they grow up, when they grow into that two million strong nation, they're going to be a distinct people from the Egyptians. They're going to be a nation growing in another nation. God has, God has worked out the details so that that could happen without them becoming like Canaanites, without them becoming like pagans, without them becoming like Egyptians. They are able to stay as Israel, identified as Israel. And not only that, but when they go in and they tell, they tell Pharaoh and they speak to Pharaoh, everything works out the way that Joseph had planned, the way that God had planned. Not only that, but they get these kind of lucrative government contracts. They're going to keep Pharaoh's livestock. They're going to make money doing that. They're going to receive favor. They're, they are, and think about this, if verses 11 and 12 really summarize uh, everything that is being done for the people of Israel there. God is, uh, God is settled them in the land of Goshen. And Joseph took care of their households. So think of, there, there's this great famine that's affecting everybody else in the world, including the Egyptians, as we'll see in a minute. And yet here is God's people. They are, they are through God's working everything out. They are being taken care of, provided for, even enriched by God's, by, by God's plan. He's taking care of them. Now then, in verses 7 through 10, uh, Jacob, Joseph presents Jacob to Pharaoh. Uh, and like a lot of ancient cultures, when a person was very old, that was a, that was a sign of God's favor. That was a sign of, uh, that was something that was well respected. And so Pharaoh looks at Jacob and says, how old are you? I mean, uh, how, how, just, man, you, you must be really favored by God. You have gray hair. You know, you, you, look, you look old, okay? God must love you. That's the way, that's the way you think about old people. That's the way you should think. Well, he looks at him and says, how, how old are you? But that's not the way that Jacob thinks about his life. Few and evil have been the days of my life. 
You know, one of the things about Moses when he writes the book of Genesis, he's not, though he is everywhere affirming God's promises and God's faithfulness, he's not afraid to show that sin has consequences in this life. And there are things to be avoided. So Jacob, Jacob had deceived his own father. Jacob had shown favoritism in his family. And those things had brought on him a lot of hardship. Now, yes, Jacob has faith. Yes, Jacob has eternal life. And even here at the end of his life, there's a lot of comfort that God brings to him. But when you're thinking about your life, when when you're in your teens and you're in your 20s and you're in your 30s, start to live your life in such a way that you would want to look back on your life when you're an old man. Because there is this sense in which many of these things could have been avoided. Yes, God, God would have worked out his plan. God, God, was, God was working out what he had ordained, but yet Jacob is responsible for his actions. And they have made it difficult, made it for a difficult life. We should, there is, no one is going to be sinless. Uh, no one is going to live a, a perfect life. But we can, enabled by the Spirit of God, live in wisdom and righteousness. And we can live a life that is, in many ways, we can, be, we can point to God's grace in our life and know that God was with us, that God was carrying us. You know, Jacob's looking at his life and says, I know that I'm older than the typical man, not as old as my fathers were. My life hadn't been the way that it could have been. So think about that. When you're teens, 20s, and 30s, you, you think about, think about what I'm go- doing now, that's not going to make a difference in my life. It's going to affect you for the rest of your life. What you do as a single person is going to affect your marriage and your family. And so think about that. We see that in Jacob's life. Now then, we've seen how God is going to take care of the nation of Israel. But what about the rest of the world? This famine is affecting everybody. We know that from from some of the things that are said here in just a minute that it's affecting Egypt, it's affecting Canaan, it's affecting maybe the, the whole known world to them. And so what happens to the nations? Will the nations be destroyed? We'll look at the end of chapter 47, starting in verse 13. We'll read through the end. This is what it says. It says, Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe. So that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh and give us seed that we may live and not die, and the land may not be desolate. 
So Joseph brought all the land of Egypt for, bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now there is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priest alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt and the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Now then, you look at verse 13. It says that in Egypt there was no food in the land. And so the Egyptians are coming. They, uh, we don't know. I, I, can't, I couldn't really figure out what year they were talking about here. But they have spent all of their money. They've been buying food from the Egyptian government. And they've been spending their money to stay alive. God had, God had sent this seven years of abundance. They had stored up grain. And now there are these seven years of intense famine. And so Joseph there is gathering up all the money. All the money from Egypt. All the money from Canaan. There is this, there is this tremendous wealth that is coming into Egypt. Not to be kept by Egypt, if you think about it. So there's all this wealth being brought into Egypt. And finally, the, the Egyptians run out of money. And they come to Joseph and they say, what, what can we do now? He says, give me your livestock. And so he, he gives them food in exchange for their livestock. And then they, they run out of livestock the year after that. And so they come to Joseph and they say, we don't have anything left but our bodies and our land. And so Joseph works out, you, I, I will basically, I will take ownership of your land and of you, and you will work your land. Now, really, Joseph works out with them kind of good terms. They're going to, they're going to give 20% to Pharaoh, and they're going to keep the rest to sow their fields and to live. Uh, but look at what they say in, chapter, in verse 25. It says, you have saved our lives. And you think about the nations here. I mean, God, God was keep taking care of Israel. Was God going to allow the nations to starve to death. He's going to allow all the other peoples to go without. No, God was, God was at work here. In order for this family to be a blessing to all nations, there still had to be nations around. And so God was going to sustain these nations until the time, until the time when they could hear the gospel, until the time when the gospel would go out to all nations. This was God's plan from the beginning to sustain them. This was a part of God's plan to, to sustain life on the earth. He had, he had destroyed the earth with a flood, but he says, I'm not going to destroy the earth with a flood anymore. Instead, seed time and harvest are going to continue. Instead, look at everything that you have. I'm giving you all of the, all of the seed-bearing plants for food, and now you have the animals for food. I'm going to take care of the earth. God has a commitment to creation, a commitment to take care of the peoples. 
Now then flip over in your Bible. If you want to listen, you can listen to Acts 14. This is Acts 14, 15 through 17. This is what it says. Men, why are you doing these things? This is where Paul and Barnabas had healed a man. And now the people were bowing down to them and trying to worship them as, as Zeus and Hermes because they thought they were gods. But Paul and Barnabas are disturbed by this. They say, men, why, why are you doing this? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news. And you should turn, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Think about that for a second. God has shown this kindness. God has shown, given this testimony to everybody in the entire world who is eating. Every time God makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust, on the righteous and the wicked, God is giving a testimony. Everybody knows that there's a creator. Every time, every time you eat something, you know that there's a creator. Everybody on the face of the earth, when these Egyptians are, are eating this bread that Joseph is giving them, they are eating a testimony that says there's a creator. There's a creator. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, there's a creator. That's where you can start with everybody. You know, all the things that God has done, all the things that God does to sustain your life. You know that God is not obligated to sustain your life. God is not obligated to feed or clothe you. In fact, if right now we received what we deserved, it would be the end of this life and the ruination of eternity. And yet God has sustained life. He's even brought you here today. He's even kept you alive long enough to hear about what the Bible says so that you might turn. You know, God, God is patient. God is patient in not bringing about judgment the way that human beings deserve. That patience is a time for repentance. It's a time to turn to the God, to the God. You know, if you think about it from the Egyptian standpoint, they are seeing Joseph being blessed, that God is with Joseph. They see this people being blessed. This is the way that it's supposed to be. They're supposed to see the wisdom of Israel. And come to know the Lord. They should be turning to God. Should be a time of repentance. If we've heard what the Bible says. If we heard that there's a creator. That we've sinned against. That we deserve judgment from. And yet we find that there is a savior. A savior of the entire earth. Not Joseph. But Jesus. One who died on the cross for sinners. One who opened up all things so that, so that people from every nation and language and tribe, from all clans, from the Egyptians, from the Assyrians, the Babylonians. Uh, Isaiah talks about all of these faraway peoples coming to know the Lord. Well, all that has started to happen now because of what Jesus has done. And so let us turn and, and trust in Jesus Christ. You can also see that Pharaoh is getting very wealthy here. Very, very wealthy. He has all the money in Egypt and Canaan. He has all the land in Egypt, all the livestock of Egypt, and he's got these countless slaves in Egypt. God has enriched Pharaoh. You notice that in the last chapter, Jacob blessed 
Pharaoh when he greeted him. He blessed him when he left him. You know, in, in a lot of ways, Pharaoh is showing hospitality to Israel, to the nation of Israel. What did God say to Abraham? I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. So this Pharaoh blesses Israel, and then is blessed by Israel, is enriched. And then there will come a Pharaoh who comes later, who is not enslaving Egyptians, but enslaves Israelites, who curses, who dishonors those Israelites by enslaving them. And then what does God do to that Pharaoh? He takes everything that he has. All that money that was stored up in the time of this Pharaoh is now given to the Israelites to get them to leave the land. You know, God, God cares about his people. You know, when you, whatever you do, the, the connection between God and his people is so strong that whatever you do to God's people, you are considered to have done to God. On the road to Damascus, what does, what does Jesus say to Paul? Why are you persecuting me? Go look at Thessalonians. Talks about what God is going to do to those who now cause you to suffer. The message of Revelation is that this is what God is. God is hearing the prayers of those souls who have gone to be with the Lord. He is hearing the prayers of his people. And he's going to bring judgment on those who, who hate them and who persecute them. Well, you think about that. What, when you despise or when you neglect or when you persecute God's people, it's the same as if you despise or neglect or persecute Christ. When you despise, neglect, persecute the church, you despise, neglect, and persecute Jesus. And so we have to, have to think about the way that God has, has carried this out, even, even into the church today, the way that God is caring for his people. God is not blind to what people are doing wrong. He's not blind to those places, to those Christians who are persecuted in other nations, even to persecution, even to, to, to ways that, that we are ostracized here. God is not blind to that. God sees those things. And God will use many, use the church to bring many to glory. And he will also, he will also do what is right in the end. You also see there at the end. Now then look down at verses 27. There's this kind of summary statement again. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt and the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So he's living there. And, and think about the contrast between Israel and Egypt here. It's Egypt's land, and yet Egypt is being enslaved. Israel are sojourners, foreigners, aliens there, and yet they are being fruitful and multiplying. This seems kind of like a strange chap, couple of chapters here, kind of like a, kind of like a, kind of like a, I don't know, chapters you would skip if you were just reading through. I mean, you just don't know what's going on here. But we have to connect these, these acts of faith and personal obedience that we see with Joseph and Jacob and his, and his brothers, that God has done a marvelous work in their family. But that marvelous work in their family is connected to a bigger picture. And that is to make a nation. And from that nation will come, will come offspring, in particular, one particular offspring, who is a king. Salvation comes from the Jews, is what Jesus tells the woman at the well. And so God is making sure that that doesn't happen. That if Israel gets cut off, 
then there are no promises. There is no future. And yet Israel can't be cut off. No matter what happens, God will sustain them. When Jesus says, I will not, the, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. There's, there is nothing that will extinguish the church. God will sustain a people for himself. There you see that Israel is going to die at the end. He becomes an old man. And interestingly enough, the same way that Joseph was with him for 17 years at the beginning of his life, now he is with Joseph for 17 years there at the end of his life. But God, God gives him comfort. And though, though we've seen how Jacob has lived a life that's been difficult, here Jacob dies in faith. Look at what he says. He says there, if now I found favor in your sight, but your hand under, put your hand on my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me, do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Why does Jacob say that? Why does he care where he's going to be buried? He now has land in Egypt. But the land in Egypt is not the promised land. Where is Jacob's faith? His faith is in the promises of God. Flip over to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, we'll read verses 13 through 16. Verses 13 through 16 there, the writer of Hebrews is talking about the patriarchs, in particular talking about Abraham and, and Isaac and, and talking about those who, who died without receiving the promises. Look at what he says. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been speaking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So you think about what Jacob's doing there. He's saying, I believe the promises of God. The writer of Hebrews says it was like they were greeting it from afar. They saw, they saw the promises of God somewhere out there in the distance, a homeland, an inheritance, something that God had promised. And so he wants to go back and be, be buried with his fathers. And yet now God has promised that Abraham would be an heir of the world, Romans 4. God has given this inheritance, and it's not, it's not an inheritance that is, that is something that is like what they came out of. Instead, this is a better place. This is a heavenly inheritance. This is a better city, a beautiful city. This is what God has promised to his people, an inheritance of eternal life. To those who would trust in Jesus Christ, who would trust in, in the one who came and gave his life for our sins, and what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that those of us who will walk by faith the same way that these men walk by faith, then we will receive an inheritance like theirs. They were sojourners and exiles. They were aliens and foreigners. So are we. God made it clear that they needed to be a distinct people. So do we. Morally and ethically, we should be distinct from the world. And God will keep a people for himself all the way to the end. 
So let's put our hope in Jesus Christ. Let's put our faith in Jesus Christ. Let us hold fast to the promises of God. And let us overcome and persevere all the way to the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, when he will make all things right and bring us into the inheritance that is ours to receive because of his death. Father, uh, thank you for thank you for these examples of faith, the way that you have preserved a people for yourself and the way that the way that you have have had a people who believed in your promises. Help us to believe your promises. Help us to know that all of your promises are yes in Jesus Christ. That you do what what is right for your people. Make us a distinct people. Make it so that we would be holy as you are holy. Make it so that we would live in wisdom and righteousness all of our days and that we would be in our wisdom and righteousness, that we'd be a light to the nations. We'd be a light for the world. Help us not to grow weary of doing good. Help us not to grow weak, but instead help us to be strong. Strengthen us by your spirit to carry out your will and to do what you have commanded us to do. Make us faithful as salt. Make us faithful as light in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.